0: You are now entering the Nintendo Power Zone. Now you're podcasting with power. Nintendo Power Zone Episode 1. Guys, we are live the second week in a row. I know it's crazy, two back-to-back shows, but we're here with an episode that we've been promising for a while. We are here with the handheld episode. I am your host, Nice1983. And I'm your co-host, Mario AfterParty. And this is one of the best topics I think we could talk about. Uh, It's probably the best topic we can tackle, especially after last week's news. Um, Nintendo has always been an amazing game company that has produced some of the most phenomenal consoles. And sometimes misunderstood consoles. But make no mistake, there is one area in consoles where they have reigned supreme. Where they've dominated, utterly thrashed the competition. And that's on the handheld front. Nintendo's ability to make amazing handhelds has literally sustained them in times where the company was struggling to compete in the home console market. So with that, we're here to discuss the great handhelds Nintendo's produced throughout the years. But not only that, we're going to talk about the competition, the people, the pretenders who thought that they could release a handheld console to compete with the illustrious Game Boy the Game Boy Advance, the DS, the 3DS. Let's see if anybody wants to try the Switch, right, man? It's going to be a really good episode. I'm excited, man. You excited to delve into Nintendo's history like this?
1: Yeah, it's been a while since we've done a history episode, so I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we always get like great responses on these history episodes. We like to do them, too. There's a lot of, you know, stuff that we grew up doing. We, we grew up playing these handhelds, and let me tell you, just because you grew up playing something doesn't mean you know, like, the stories involved, like, the competitions that were involved behind the scenes. So it's going to be great to just get into this. But before we do all of that, we got to hit you up with the Nintendo News Report. excited uh so we just got a new character for Pokémon tournament in Sizor, and the pokemon company announced that on november 1st they're going to be unveiling a new character for Pokémon tournament any thoughts on this any thoughts at all man just caution to the wind man make a guess
1: i'm just gonna go with the pokemon that i would like to see and um I'm going to say Steelix because he would be different to... I'm pretty sure if they put Steelix in there, um, he would definitely have a different fighting style to a lot of the Pokemon in the game because he would be the only one that is not in a humanoid kind of form or an animal form where where they have legs and arms. I mean, Darker Eye kind of floats around, but, you know, he still has his scythe, right? And he has two little twig legs and some for some attacks. So, I think uh, Steelix would definitely have a unique fighting style. He's one of my favorite Pokemon, so I'm just going to say Steelix. See, I want to go retro.
0: I mean, we're already feeling nostalgic with Pokemon Go and all these other games that like you know seeing alolan forms of, of of old pokemon but i would personally like to see hitmonchan i mean how can you have a fighting game a pokemon fighting game without the original fighting pokemon hitmonchan and hitmonlee it's it bothers my mind to to think that they're not in it i definitely want hitmonchan i i would love to have like a Pokemon walk in there with the traditional boxing. You've already got Pikachu Libre who represents like, you know, mass wrestling. I would totally get behind them doing Hitmonchan, similar to, uh, to, uh, man, uh, Balrog from Street Fighter. I would love for him to have a similar move set to Balrog from Street Fighter. That would be sick as hell.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I am I, would definitely be feeling a uh, Hitmonchan in the game because, uh... And he's not one of the support Pokemon, so I think there is a good chance that we could actually get him as a character. Because I don't think they're going to um, have any of the, su- you know, if, if if you're a support Pokemon in the game, I think that means that you probably aren't going to get to be a, a main character, like, as a fighter, because it would be weird to have, like, I don't know... Espeon using Espeon to help itself, That'd but kind of cool though. <clears throat> I mean, they might do it, but yeah, you never know. We, we could get one of the the uh, fighting Pokemon from Gen One. I'm kind of hoping that due to the
0: fact that they're announcing so many playable characters uh, so soon, that it means that the characters are coming in a bundle at least by january i i would like to have them in november like at the end of november because it's been you know dark Rise been out for a while and now Sizor been out for a few weeks i don't want there to be too much of a disadvantage in the meta but we have spoke about that at length um just i'm just got my fingers crossed that this these characters will be
1: bundled as dlc for the wii u version well even and reasonably priced yeah, reasonably price is important, but even if you're not a competitive player, they still need to come out with them relatively soon. Like, I, I agree, by the end of November, really, that's when they should be coming out in some sort of a bundle, because it's just not fair to tell us that we have three characters in Pokken that we can't use. If, you know, they keep releasing these characters and showing all of the, uh, gameplay footage of them and they're like oh sorry you can't play with it so it's just kind of a tease for the fans so they really you know they need to come out with it soon oh yeah so
0: let's stick with the competitive gameplay stories for a while Uh, Nintendo is hosting an online Splatoon tournament uh, throughout the month of November Uh, and you're gonna be able to play in every type
1: of mode it seems, man. Uh, You got this story pulled up? Yes, yeah, so the way that this tournament is going to work is that the tournament is going to run throughout the month of November, and there is going to be a tournament for each mode <laughs> the, the first tournament is going to be in Turf War, which is pretty cool because normally Turf War is not played um, competitively since it's, it's not, you know, in ranked mode, but... Um, the way that they have the the format for the tournaments set up is pretty convenient as well because they're they're on the weekends so um the qualifiers are either going to be and and from the way that i i'm re- i'm reading it on the website it looks like you can pick which day you want to register i don't think you have to do both days and you can so you can register for qualifier one or qualifier two and then you know, qualifier one is always on a Saturday. Qualifier two is always on a Sunday. And then if you if you win that, then they have the the finals scheduled um, usually a week after that. But uh, like I said, the tournament um, starts November fifth, and then uh, Rainmaker is actually the final mode. And the Rainmaker finals will be December third, and that's when the tournament will end. But Just the fact that it is a um, Wi-Fi tournament is really good. Um, I know that, you know, LAN tournaments are ideal because of latency issues and and lag, but um, they're they're also more difficult to coordinate because, you know, it's not like a Smash tournament. You can't just show up there by yourself and play. You have to be there in the same physical location as the other three people on your team, and this tournament, will finally, you know, give Nice One and I a chance to, yeah, compete um, without having to be in the same place, so that's really nice. Yeah,
0: and uh, guys, we are actively looking for a fourth player. Mario After Party and myself, we are definitely going to be entering uh, my fiance, who is a beast at Splatoon. Well she's you know she typically operates as a as a third for us, but we need a fourth and we want to incentivize you. All you gotta do is email us at thesplatzones at gmail.com and if you are our fourth player, you get a chance to be on the show. Uh, after the tournament is over in December, we will give you a ring and we will have you on the show and we're gonna just do an interview. Just, you know, this is a call out to all the fans. You love the show, you wanna play games with us, we wanna play games with you, Uh, get on, email us, get on the show, get in this tournament with us. We want a fourth and we want it to be one of our dedicated listeners. So that would be awesome. So go ahead, hit us up. Like I said, splatzones at gmail.com. And uh, this this news, by the way, it kind of comes on the heels of a rumor that I, that's been popping up all over the internet. By the way, uh, Nintendo is basically trying to commit themselves to esports in a very significant way. Currently, what they do is they provide consoles for Smash tournaments. They provided consoles for well, they've hosted mini Splatoon tournaments and they broadcast them. They did um. They did it at E3, not this year, but the year before. Uh, they've had a, you know, they they actually had a tournament for the employees that they broadcasted on Twitch. They've had a few tournaments here and there. There's a, there was just one in Japan that I just watched it on YouTube. Very awesome. Um, but this, co- you know, and they've also, obviously they've sponsored Pokemon tournament at Evo and at Pokemon World Championships. Nintendo has made strides uh to embrace the esports community but the rumor is now is that nintendo is really looking to make a big push into esports in 2017 on the switch uh there was apparently they're reaching out to professional esports teams and trying to get players sponsored and maybe maybe they might start fronting some some of the prize pool money which they haven't done before Nintendo has the games now. They have the competitive games to get behind eSports, and they're Nintendo. They're, they are, well, while they the, might not be the most is. popular company, they're the biggest uh, video game company that can push an esport title.
1: Yes, and the community is there. The community for Smash is, is large, and the community for Splatoon, um, It's there, too, and it's going to grow even more when they release Splatoon 2. Um, But with that uh, eSports and and Switch news, let me just segue that into the final news story. There's going to be a Nintendo Direct in January, guys. Nintendo is going to reveal everything that we need to know about the Switch after the holiday season, which makes sense, which is kind of what we talked about before. January 13th, right? January thirteenth. Uh, obviously, guys, if you follow the channel,
0: you know I will be doing a on reaction, an online reaction. Uh, that way, you can get my initial thoughts on the system. And of course, we are going to be talking about that in an episode of the Splat Zone. Uh, since we're retiring the Pokemon Corner, we're going to do. We are going to start having uh, the Nintendo NX Watch, but. Obviously we know the name of the system, so we're going to start calling get the Nintendo Switch it up. So anytime Nintendo releases pertinent news about the Nintendo Switch, bonus episode for you guys. That way, just because the Pokemon Corner is gone, doesn't mean you're getting less content. So know that that day, live reaction from me, and we will be doing a live show. I'm excited, man. There was no way in hell that we saw everything we had to see in that 3-minute trailer. So you can only imagine what they're going to show us. In well,
1: anyway, they're going to reveal the specs of the system. They've also... Um, Tatsumi Kimishima actually did an interview um, discussing that. And uh, he said in the interview that, you know, that they didn't show everything that they can do with the Switch. And they're going to show you more in that Nintendo Direct. And also, they're going to announce all of um, their launch titles. And show us, you know, they're, they're going to introduce those titles to us. It's not just going to be, you know, like a, a few seconds of what we saw in the in the trailer. They're going to show us, like they're going to actually show them to us. So we're going to get to see, um, which I mean, two months before it's released, we kind of need to. But um... that was a weird interview, by the way,
0: since you brought it up. They, uh... Nintendo's been really adamant against uh, VR for a while. They, Reggie, basically said we're not doing VR because it's it's not fun socially. Uh, it's it's an individual experience, and we're not looking into that. And Miyamoto has been contradicting that for a while, saying he tried VR, he he thought it was cool, definitely wants to explore it. And then Kimishima comes out in this interview and says, we are definitely exploring VR for
1: the Switch. And I'm like... Well, Kimishima also said that Nintendo is not, um, you know, like for right now, they don't have any plans to uh, put it in the Switch. But he said he's open to the idea. He said it's not impossible. But, you know, Nintendo still... You know they're kind of i think they're just kind of seeing how well vr is received with you know what playstation vr is doing and and the uh, oculus rift and um they're they're gonna like kind of wait it out i think yeah i mean I'm, it's definitely interesting so guys
0: those are the news stories for this for this week let us know email us what was your favorite story, in the, out of these three big ones, because I think they're all pretty big? After Party, What about you? What is the biggest story for you in this in this brief? Well,
1: we had a lot of big stories this week. It's great, but the um, you know the news about the Nintendo Direct is probably the biggest one. But um, you know, for me, the Splatoon tournament was like my favorite one because that was that just came out of nowhere. Well,
0: I'm 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 all about the direct. Uh, I'm a big fan of Nintendo's directs. I mean, if there was one thing Iwata did completely right, it was Nintendo directs. Um, it's it's since they started directs in 2011, they have been the most important way to get substantial news out of Nintendo. Um, we talked about this a lot during the E3 episode, how important the Directs have become because it's allowed Nintendo to move away from from the stage shows and how much it's allowed them to basically control the content. We see things as they want us to see them um, versus we have an hour to show you all these things here at E3. So I'm a big fan of the Directs gonna be nice to have one and it's gonna be nice to really find out all this news about the switch because I mean it's been a week but my hype for the switch hasn't hasn't really dwindled I'm still like on cloud nine thinking about it Um, I know a lot of other forums have basically you know now that the initial hype has been weaned weaned off of them they're starting to be a little bit more critical of the hardware uh, yeah. I'm still on board. I am still 100% on board, but we're definitely going to talk about the Switch more in this episode uh, because, like I said, we're, we're diving into Nintendo's handhelds, and this episode couldn't come at a better time because we know what Nintendo's handheld plans potentially are from this point forward. You know, what We're going to get into it later. Let's just move on. So what are we playing? After party, any big games
1: that you've been playing this week? No, I've really um, mostly been playing Splatoon to try to practice for the tournament and maybe getting a little bit of uh, poking in, but other than that, not really. Oh, man. I Well, I've been joining you for those Splatoon
0: sessions, and I've been playing a little bit on my own. But my new addiction right now, man is captain toad uh one of the best puzzle games i have ever played uh everything about the game is it's it's adorable uh, like aesthetically and the the puzzles are challenging and they get progressively more challenging as you move on in the game and this is a lot of fun uh my fiance sits next to me as i play it she helps me solve the puzzles it's fun it is an awesome game and it's it was actually highly rated but i still think it went under the radar it's it's rare for a game to get like the review scores that captain toad got and for it to still be under the radar it kind of validates the fact that we're moving on to the nintendo switch next year outside of that guys i think i've just been playing a little bit of pokemon go finally got a muck yesterday so super ecstatic about that But we're going to skip our Pokemon Go stats. And uh, you want to just slide right into the topic of the month, man, because this is a big one.
1: Yep, let's do it.
0: All right. So, guys, as we said, this is the handheld episode. So a lot of history here. When you talk about Nintendo's handhelds, you have to start at one place. Actually, that, that place is actually a person. You have to start with the man Gunpei Yokoi or as he's known the father of the Game Boy this guy was a legend like com- it's it's hard to f- think of a man who was more important to nintendo than shigeru miyamoto but this guy he was Shige- he is literally shigeru miyamoto's mentor so that tells you the importance of gunpei yokoi uh he started out as the warehouse manager for Nintendo, uh, and this guy, this guy was just too big for that position. As the story goes, the president Hiroshi Yamauchi was walking through the warehouse one day, and he had seen a toy that Yokoi had made himself, and it was like an extended an extending arm with a little claw at the end that picked things up, and he basically said. To, uh, to, to Gunpei Yokoi that I want to mass-produce these. That, that moment on, Yokoi has been part of product development for Nintendo, where he really hit his stride. And I love this story, man. I love this story. As the story goes, he was sitting on the train, right? And as he's sitting on the train on his way home from work, he sees somebody else on the train, and they pulled out their calculator and guys keep in mind that this is during the 80s where you know handhelds aren't really the norm and he just sees this guy playing on his calculator his liquid crystal display calculator just tapping on the buttons and that gave him an idea the idea was he wanted to make a watch that also had a portable game so he went back and he essentially came up with the concept for Nintendo's real handheld, the Game and Watch. Uh, the Game and Watch was first released in, on uh, April twenty eighth of nineteen eighty. There were up to there were fifty nine different models of the Nintendo Game and Watch. Uh, key franchises that showed up on the Game and Watch are Donkey Kong, The Legend of Zelda, Mario Brothers. They all had variations on the uh the game and watch and that's incredible. Those are some big titles. I mean, those are titles that you see on Nintendo's core hardware, so that's pretty cool. The Game & Watch is also where for the we see for the first time the cross-style D-pad and we see that in a little game called Donkey Kong. The D-pad is one of the most important pieces of development ever made. In gaming, it is so important that he won awards for the design of the... Well, I'm sorry, he, I mean, Nintendo won awards for the D-Pads design because it's been so influential in the way that we play games today. It is it is an amazing piece of of hardware. Uh, later iterations of the Game & Watch, this is cool to me, dual stack screens... And guys, if you are watching this video version right now live, I am going to put this up on the screen for you to see because this is truly
1: epic. Dual screens—it blew epic. my mind when they, when I was looking at that because it looks exactly like a Nintendo DS. And um, you know they released that um, in '82 when when uh, Donkey Kong came out, and they released it for that game and. Um, I think those uh, were were going for about $20 um, for one of the clamshell models back when it first came out, which is very reasonably priced. And I think it was the most popular uh, model of the Game & Watch. Oh, man. When I saw this, I
0: instantly flashed back to an early childhood memory. Um, I remember seeing this exact game and watch and i actually remember playing it i was at a party and i played this game it must have been around uh 1987 or 88 old enough for me to remember playing this i remember when i saw the ds for the first time i felt like i had seen it before but i couldn't quite put my finger on it and as we were doing research for this episode seeing this just just that flashback of this dual stack screen, I was like, wow, the dual stack game and watch, man, just to see how influential that truly was, that it, you know, years upon years later, that it it would come back in the form of the DS, super impressive to me, man, like, an amazing, an amazing concept, and it just shows how influential Gunpei Yokoi truly was for Nintendo, that they went back to his design for these dual stack screens when it came back to when it came to developing the Nintendo DS. Very cool. So that's Nintendo's real first attempt at a console. I mean, and you know, to go back to the D-pad, that D-pad, that cross D-pad, which is a staple of Nintendo. It's been on every console to date, with the exception of the Switch. Uh, obviously, the Switch has a different set of buttons for the d-pad because they will perform different functions than your traditional d-pad would but it's been heavily influential to nintendo as a a whole and they sold a lot of these units man how many units did you say they sold over the game and watch to me earlier
1: they sold over 40 they sold 43.4 million units worldwide
0: that is a lot considering that these are individual games they are not like a they're not like like handhelds where we remove the cartridge and you can play a different game. These games are literally one game. So says a lot for how popular the Game & Watch was in the 80s. So very cool. Love, love researching this because I love seeing all the different iterations of the Game & Watch. Uh, but moving on, man, you... I I, I am impressed by the work ethic you put into this episode. You had a task, especially for this next generation. You had the Game Boy era. So hit us up with those
1: facts, my brother. All right, so um, Gen 3 of the handheld era. Um, So the Game Boy came out uh, in 1989, and... It was an 8-bit system. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it it has a classic design. Um, A lot of you've probably seen it on, like, belt buckles or, you know, stickers or, you know, but it it had the D-pad on the left side and then the A and B buttons on the right side with the select and start, and then the right side also had a link cable port to where you could connect to other Game Boys. Um, it ran on four AA batteries, and it could give you over 30 hours of battery life on that, and that is important because most of Nintendo's competitors of that time, that was their downfall. That was the single, like, probably um, spec about their competition, that their competition could not do better than Nintendo, um, and then, and we'll get into their competition in, in a second, um, in 1996, Nintendo came out with the Game Boy Pocket, which used two AAA batteries, um, but it only received 10 hours of battery life, and, uh, it was just a smaller, lighter version, um, the, really the most important is the Game Boy Color, which, um, it also launched for uh, it well it was it was slightly cheaper is was, was ten bucks cheaper than what the Game Boy originally launched at, uh, but the Game Boy Color came out in nineteen ninety eight for seventy nine ninety five, which that is almost a decade after the Game Boy, so Gen three was by far the the longest generation. Um, Sorry to
0: interrupt you just for a moment, man, but. I'm screen sharing the Game Boy Pocket right now. And I know the Game Boy Color is the superior hardware. But take a look at the design of the Game Boy Pocket, man. Look how sleek that was. It's Especially if you were coming to this console from the original Brick Boy, which is what I like to call the old Game Boy. Because this thing is like 30% smaller than the original Game Boy. And the Game Boy Color is actually... A little bit larger than this model that I have on the screen right now, but awesome, awesome design for the Game Boy Pocket. I'm sorry, man, I just
1: had to show everybody this. You're good. So, the Game Boy Color, you know, coming out almost a decade after the Game Boy, um, obviously it was in color, um, but it still was not backlit, so you had to be in a relatively well-lit area to play the Game Boy Color. Um, It was backwards compatible with all of the old Game Boy games, and it would even add um, a limited amount of color to those games. But the original Game Boy was not forwards compatible, so it couldn't play Game Boy Color games. Um, So you you would have had to upgrade to the color if you wanted to play Pokemon Red and Blue, which is what kept the Game Boy alive for so long, um, and just helped the Game Boy to dominate its rivals. Um, Nintendo's biggest competition during that era came from Sega, not just in the home console market, but the handheld as well. The Game Gear was released in uh, 1990 in Japan, but uh, 1991 in North America. It had a similar design. It had two buttons on the right, a D-pad on the left. Um, It didn't have a select button, but it did have a start button above the um, 1 and 2, they called their A and B buttons. Uh, It was above those. So... um, and, and one of the main features of the Game Gear was that it was a full-color backlit screen. So you could play this, you know, in your room at night with the lights off. Um, it was still 8-bit, but it was technologically more advanced than the Game Boy. It had a TV tuner. Um, so for uh, $105, you could... Uh, by the TV tuner which lets you watch TV. Uh, It looked kind of like a radio tuner because this is before we went digital. So you could actually tune in to TV stations like you could tune into radio stations. Um, It had a Game Gear car adapter which plugged into the cigarette lighter which, um, which was really important because it took six AA batteries to power this thing, and it would only give you three to five hours of battery life.
0: Oh, so, God. Therein
1: lies the problem with the Game Gear, my brother. Yes. Um, and price point. You have... The, the Game Boy launched at um, 89 dollars And the Game Gear came out at $149.99. So significantly more expensive um and yes it this is a a reoccurring problem with nintendo's competition is that it did not have nearly the same battery life and i had a game gear and a game boy so i you know believe me like it was when you bought a a handheld system back in the day you had to take into account that you were still paying for it like you didn't just buy the system and it's it's 149 dollars you know and that's that's your purchase and you're done you have to consider that you are buying double-a batteries for the rest of the time that you use that that system so it when you when you look at the cost of double-a of batteries they weren't really expensive but they weren't necessarily cheap either and I remember my mom used to get mad at me because I was always asking her for AA batteries because I had a Game Boy and a Game Gear. And she was <laughs> like, no, you—we're spending so much money on batteries, and like, really, like these handhelds probably like were one of the best things to ever happen to the uh, battery industry. But uh, you know, when, but when you look at the fact that the the Game Boy could get over 30 hours on four double A's and the Game Gear took six and it could only get three to five. That's a problem. Um, to
0: interrupt you there, just a, one more time, and I hate to do this. Um, there's actually a reason why Nintendo chose the monochrome display. Um, and this is something that we see a lot in Nintendo hardware. Uh, it's the Yakoi Yokoi method. Gunpei Yokoi was a big... Uh, a Big influence on Nintendo design. And he was the, the guy that would say technology doesn't have to be too advanced. You, It doesn't matter how advanced the technology is if the games are good. So he decided that when it came to Nintendo hardware, they didn't always have to push to the next level, that they could stay on the same level and still be innovative at that level. And the Game Boy is truly like the best way to, to to showcase that old tech. When the Game Boy was released in 1989, that was old tech. Um, and they just reappropriated it and you know they 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 iterated on it and they they expanded upon the on the Game Boy, they made it smaller, they made it, you know. They made it in color. When it became economical for them to be in color, that's when they moved to color. Uh, And the Game Gear wanted to push the limits. They wanted to be what Nintendo wasn't. Uh, They wanted it to have that full-color display, and clearly that backlight and that full-color display that the Game Gear had, that hindered the Game Gear significantly. I had a Game Gear as well as a child, and... It got to the point where I was putting my batteries in the freezer constantly to try to get extra life out of them until my parents eventually bought me an AC adapter with, like, a two-foot cable. So I'd be playing my Game Gear, like, facing the wall like a a dumbass. They also got me the car adapter, too, but that also had a short cable, so I was, like, leaning into the front seat of the car as a child. Um, That makes sense. I still love my Game
1: Gear. That is hardcore right there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, the Game Gear had the car adapter, so it was actually a great system for car rides and uh, for long road trips, you know. But um, like you said, you know, the the cable wasn't really very long, um, which is a problem. Um, And then if you're not in your car, like, you know, the the whole purpose of a uh, handheld console is to be able to take it around places with you. So that that the battery life really was killed it there. But I totally agree with, with you know Nintendo's philosophy in that, you know, if the games are good, people will buy the system. It doesn't have to be the most powerful. And the Game Boy was not as powerful as any of its competitors at the time, Um, even when they went up to the Game Boy Color. The Game Boy Color was pretty, but it it still wasn't backlit. But Nintendo was smart because they realized that you don't sell systems based off of hardware specifications alone because at the end of the day it doesn't matter how technologically advanced your console is you know the the technology in and of itself isn't isn't fun like you don't sit there and like wow this backlit screen is so fun to stare at no it's you have to have a game for that that is fun to play on that the technology can enhance so Nintendo also realized that, you know, their price point was was important at the time too because parents buy this uh, for their kids, and then also, you know, uh, kids that were buying game Game Boys with their own money, um, eighty dollars or ninety dollars is a lot to ask, um, and that was probably. A good point. A good price point at that time, especially for what they had offered.
0: Um, well, eighty dollars back in the eighties and nineties—that's like one hundred and
1: fifty dollars now. Yeah, it was definitely more back then than it is today. And the game, the original Game Boy, launched for ninety dollars. So you gotta you gotta consider that. But the price point is another downfall of Nintendo's competitors. Like if and one of the all mo- For most of their competitors, the main thing that they have in common is that they're all technologically more advanced than Nintendo, but they cost more, and the battery life sucks. So, you know, and also the library of games wasn't necessarily, like, it, they couldn't compete with Nintendo, even, the ga- even on the Game Gear. The Game Gear had some great games, but it also had a lot of, shovelware, and it, it just... I remember um, having a few crappy titles on the Game Gear, so... Um, but moving on, uh, the Atari Lynx was also released in 1989, and it was the first handheld with a color LCD screen. Um, however, it launched at 179 95 That is more... Well, that... Actually, if you compare that to the original Game Boy, it's it's double what the original Game Boy launched for.
0: Man, I think that's what the PSP launched that in 2005. That's ridiculous.
1: So, it's... Yeah. It was backlit. One of the interesting features um, of this console is that it was switchable for uh, right or left-handed people, so because of, it had buttons, um, like an A and B button on the bottom, and then like a, a mirrored A and B button above that so that you could flip this, the uh, console upside down if you were left-handed and you wanted to use the D-pad with your, with your right hand and uh, your right thumb instead.
0: Again, if you guys are watching the video version... It's right there on the screen for you to see. Take a look at the Atari links, because uh, my after party's right. It is a
1: crazy looking console, and so I'm kind of surprised that that hasn't been uh, at least re- replicated by somebody since then, because that's kind of ingenious. Because um, you know we sometimes we uh, we forget about all the lefties in our society, and um, Atari really tried to make that uh, handheld as accessible as possible. Also, it had the ability to network with up to 17 other units via a cable-based system, although finding... Uh, most games would only allow you to actually network or play with up to eight people. 17? Yeah, that was the the limits of that technology, but it would never have been able... They, they weren't able to to ever do that because i think the the um the games really they they only supported like up to eight players and and finding eight people that had or seven if you owned an atari links and finding seven other people that own one was probably difficult too i didn't have one but um you know six double a batteries four to five hours of battery life that's it was like almost the same as the game year so you know you're you're spending even more money and you're still getting crappy battery life and you're going to continue to spend more money on double-a batteries during this
0: era like i mean you got to remember that atari is the reason why there was the the market crash of the 80s like i remember this and a home console that they were working on were supposed to like really push them back into the forefront but like when you're reading these specs off to me, I, I I gotta say, there's no way that I could ever imagine them really recapturing the market in any significant way. So, it's insane.
1: Yes, and then, um, so, the NEC Turbo Express was the most expensive of Nintendo's competitors. It launched for 250 bucks. Uh, it came out, A year after the Game Boy in Japan but it was not released in North America until 1992 Um, the pixel failure was high uh, sound failure was high on it Uh, because of the pixel failure it made text very difficult to read which um, I've seen gameplay footage of it and it's it would have been impossible if you owned an RPG for that system. Um, also, there was no internal memory, so you could not save your game on the NEC Turbo Express. They used a password save mechanism as an alternative, but um, you know, for for as technologically advanced as it was, it it just there were a lot of bugs in that system. And uh, it really, it, it, it didn't sell well either. Uh, it only sold 1.5 million um, units. And I will get into the sales of some of the others uh, in a minute. But it it just, uh, it wasn't very successful. Um, the Game.com, which was released by Tiger in Tiger Electronics in 1997 sold less than 300,000 and that was the lowest selling of Nintendo's competition during that time, uh, for Gen 3 at least. There's not much to say about it. Um, It had a touch screen. Um, I believe you told me it was the first uh, handheld to ever have a touch screen. Yeah, first
0: first one came with a pen similar to a the DS,
1: so it uh, wasn't backlit, no color, shitty graphics. Uh, had internet access, but only really to check your email. You couldn't play games online. You could upload your high scores, but you couldn't um, really do much. And it was it was a pretty shitty system. And so we're moving on. So the final competitor during Gen 3, was the Neo Geo Pocket. The Neo Geo Pocket went against a lot of, you know, the grain of what its competitors were doing. And it didn't have the same problems. It launched in 1998, but in Japan only. Because one week um, before... Well, it launched one week after the Game Boy Color. So Nintendo came out with the Game Boy Color and pretty much made the Neo Geo Pocket obsolete because it was not backlit, and even though graphically it was superior to the Game Boy, once the Game Boy Color came out, they were like, shit. So less than a year later, they came out with the Neo Geo Pocket Color, um, and that was released in 1999 in Japan and North America, so you could get that in the States. It, it launched 69.95. It was the cheapest of any of the competitors. So the price point was great for it. Also, it only required two AA batteries and it would get you 40 hours. Remember, the Game Boy got you. The Game Boy could get, I would say, 30 to 40, but it got over 30 hours of, of gameplay for four AA batteries. So. Now, not only is the price point better, but the battery life is is way better for the Neo Geo um, Pocket Color. Um, it launched with 14 titles, which was a record for a handheld at uh, that time in 1999, and uh, it had a joystick. You know, it had like an, an analog stick. It did. It was. Um, it, it, it was pretty um, pretty amazing. And and uh, it was also the the Neo Geo Pocket um, was forwards compatible with the Pocket Color. All the games that came out for the Color, you could still play them on your Pocket. So if you had got the Pocket um, in Japan, at least, you weren't really burned. Um, but... So with all these great things, and and let me tell you the the it was not backlit, the pocket color was not backlit, but it still was very pretty and graphically it was better than what the Game Boy Color had to offer. Um, I wouldn't say like a lot better, but it was better. And uh, and so you're looking at like price points better, battery life's better, graphics graphically it's better. How come this thing didn't succeed? Well. Part of the problem was a lack of third-party support, which contributed to a lack of diversity in their games. Neo Geo is making all the, all these games. Um, mo- a lot of them were fighting games on, on the uh, Neo Geo Pocket Color. It had connectivity with the Dreamcast, but that was kind of a bad partnership to make with Sega because that was as Sega was crashing and burning. Um, <laughs> and... Really, the reason why... I mean, it's kind of a shame, because it was a good handheld system. But Pokemon is what killed the Neo Geo Pocket Color. When Pokemon came out, red and blue created such hysteria. It was like, you know... Think about like Pokemon Go on a handheld level... um, And it just allowed Nintendo to crush everybody else. So the Neo Geo Pocket Color only ended up selling about 2 million units. Um, And and to put that into perspective, the Game Boy and Game Boy Color sold 118.69 million units worldwide. That is more than all of their competitors combined. The Game Gear only sold 10.62 million units, and the Atari Lynx only sold um, about 3 million. So you're looking... I mean, and that's not to say that the Game Gear wasn't a success either. The Game Gear, with the 10.62 million units it sold, it still sold more than, than the rest of the field combined as well, because the Lynx... And the Express, uh, the Atari Lynx, the NEC Turbo Express, the Game.com, and the Neo Geo Pocket Color combined still didn't match the Game Gear sales. So the Game Gear was was a pretty good competitor for um, the Game Boy. And remember, at the time um, when they came out, the sales were a lot closer. Uh, it's just that the lifespan of the Game Boy was so long that by the time Pokemon came out for it, you know, for I mean, Pokemon Gold and Silver, when that came out for the uh, Game Boy Color, it just continued the lifespan of the, of the Game Boy. So the Game Boy's lifespan lasted, you know, into the new millennium. And it came out in 1989. It was just an incredibly resilient piece of hardware that survived because the games were good. Because they had better games than their competition. Um, It's so interesting that Pokemon
0: is the catalyst of... Because I remember before Pokemon, the, the popularity of the Game Boy was starting to finally wane before Pokemon had come
1: out. Yes, I remember too. Because I, I had a Game Boy and I had not played it whew, in probably, I don't even remember, oh, like probably a year or two before yeah. Pokemon Red and Blue came out.
0: Yeah, I'm saying both. I remember putting it down. I remember because 1996, 1998 in America, well, those were like the key years for the 64 and the PlayStation. Like we were playing those consoles at yeah. home, so imagine how little we actually played the Game Boy until Pokemon came out. It was, it literally saved the Game Boy. It, like the Game Boy was like on its last heartbeat, and then somebody hit it with a shot of testosterone, uh, of adrenaline, and revitalized the shit out of the Game Boy.
1: Right, and and had that had Pokemon not come out, the. Uh, Neo Geo Pocket Color may have succeeded um, but that lack of third party support was really hard for it too because you know they weren't like Nintendo they ju- they couldn't just support a an entire system by themselves even in Nintendo's attempt to do it with the Wii U was a failure even though they they managed to have some success with it so but but also to put that into perspective, the Game Boy, with, with that 118 million units, it has sold more than not just the competitors that came out during its lifespan, but more than all of the competitors that came out after combined. Cool. That's
0: that's insane to the Game Boy, man. like. Game Boy really, really won uh, for Nintendo. It won the console wars for Nintendo on the handheld front decisively. And there were a, look at how listen to how many competitors after party read off. He read off like five competitors, all of them with superior tech. And yet the Game Boy managed to destroy them all. With relative ease, because of of simple ideals. Like, simple ideals have kept the Game Boy alive. Uh, But, conversely, Nintendo, moving on to... Listen, we're going to call this Gen 3.5 for Nintendo and their handhelds. Nintendo released the Virtual Boy. Uh, This was not... success by any means I mean not at all so the virtual boy was released on July 21st of 1995 it only sold 770,000 units the the virtual boy has an interesting story so the technology that went into developing the uh, the virtual boy was initially developed by a Massachusetts company called RTI and uh, they wanted to sell this so initially they brought you know they brought the tech to Hasbro Mattel and Sega all of these companies declined for a couple of reasons the first one being motion sickness because the goggles that they developed for you know their initial technology had head tracking movement just like you know VR devices of of this generation uh, and it only had a single color display. It was a red monochrome display. So the only colors you got were red and black. Um, they brought the, the technology to Nintendo, and Gunpei Yokoi was enthralled by it. And he saw it as a means to get a leg up on the competition and start something incredible. He He figured that no... Competitor would would have any technology like this for at least two years after they released this console. So it was codenamed VR32. This isn't reference to the fact that it was a virtual reality 32-bit console. Uh, the launch price for this device, when it did launch, this is a contributing factor as to why this console failed, among other reasons. But this is a this is a big one. It launched at $179.95. When you consider that Mario After Party said that the Game Boy re- launched,
1: it at, launched 90,
0: at, $90. at $90. This console is twice that. Literally, it is twice the price. Um, like I said, this product was initially going to have head track tracking functionality, but it was removed from the final product. Because of the Japan Product Liability Act of 1995 and concerns of further motion sickness and the risk of lazy eye in young children. So instead, Nintendo opted to have it be a tabletop form factor, which basically means they took away the portability of a portable console. So it was literally you would be sitting at a table and you would have to lean into this big goggle headset, and had its nice controllers at the bottom. I like the controllers. It actually had two D-pads, one on the left and one on the right. Uh, you had your face buttons. The controller is in the shape of an M, very similar to the uh, controller for the 64. Very cool. So this, this was the first console to display uh, stereoscopic 3D. Stereoscopic 3D, that's important because that comes back later in the form of the Nintendo 3DS. Like that tech is something that Nintendo has been severely interested in and they really wanted to bring it out for the Virtual Boy. So I didn't know this about the Virtual Boy initially, but I thought this was cool. Initially, the console was going to have two-player functionality. It was going to get a – they developed a link cable for it You plugged it into the bottom of the console, and if you and somebody else had a Virtual Boy, obviously you could play two-player games very similar to, you know, the Game Boy. Uh, But, this is important. No multiplayer games were ever actually made for the Virtual Boy, so they never released the Link Cable. Insane. Especially when you consider the fact that Nintendo has made it their goal to incorporate multiplayer, especially like in-the-same-place multiplayer. Uh, Something that really hindered the Virtual Boy, and I mean significantly hindered the Virtual Boy, was that there were only 22 games made for the console. And there's a reason for this. Hiroshi Yamauchi, Yamauchi, who was the president of Nintendo, did not want third-party companies to develop for the console. Uh, And the reason was this was how he wanted We always know that Nintendo is very big on quality control. So the way they did quality control for the Virtual Boy was they only let like five or six third-party companies develop software for it. Dang, that's
1: like we don't trust
0: you. (laughs) (laughs) At all. At all. You know what? It almost, shades of the Nintendo Switch right here, where it's like Nintendo was very secret, it has been very secretive about the Switch up until last week. You you see some similar trends in the way that Nintendo does business. Um, the Virtual Boy failed for a number of reasons, and this is, this may be, say what you want about the Wii U. But no console has failed as bad as the Virtual Boy. I said it, 770, 770 units sold worldwide. Um, the la- the fact that it's a portable system that isn't portable is one. Uh, the monochrome uh, display, the red and black, it made people nauseous. Um, Not good. It took away the social aspect of gaming that Nintendo had been basically breeding with the NES and the Super NES, uh, all these things factor. And I think the marketing for this was the worst marketing campaign Nintendo has ever had because you couldn't show you gameplay. They couldn't... There was no way for them to truly show you what the system was capable of because of the fact that it was a, it was a head mount. All these things... Factor into the, the reasons why the Virtual Boy just completely bombed. Like, no other word for it. Just
1: completely blew up in their face. It's kind of like VR today. You, you really can't... It's hard to market. You can't show somebody how it's going to look on a TV screen. And they had the same issue with the 3DS.
0: It was really hard for them to really showcase the 3DS back in was 2011 because they couldn't show you the 3d working they couldn't physically show you how it worked you actually had to go pick it up and touch it and play with it uh i never had a virtual boy but i did play it a lot actually uh you know the you know the base that we grew up on they had one in the in the power zone uh where you know they had one display and i use it a lot there my mom can shop for hours guys so i would be sitting in the uh the power zone, I'd be playing the virtual boy. And I tell you what, I would always come back like very nauseous after playing the virtual boy. I thought it was cool and I wanted one, but it, you know, it did make me nauseous as a kid. What's interesting about the virtual boy is, uh, again, I stated that it was developed by Gunpei Yokoi and uh, the failure of the, of the virtual boy has been cited as the, one of the reasons why he left Nintendo that, His shame was so great at the failure of the uh, Virtual Boy that he... Performed seppuku? (laughs) No, not really, but... (laughs) His shame was so great that apparently that he was shunned by other Nintendo employees and that he just couldn't take working there anymore, and that's the reason why he left. Now, Yokoi himself stated that he was planning on retiring much earlier than that. He wanted to retire at age 50 uh, from Nintendo, but he stayed around for a few more years because he, he did uh, stay long enough to help develop the Game Boy uh, Color, which actually, ironically, came out after the Virtual Boy. Like They literally used the Game Boy to fall back on when the Virtual Boy failed. Um, but it has been... I mean, it's, there are conflicting reports, but I wouldn't be surprised if... This is the reason why he did leave Nintendo because there is a practice in Japan. Uh, if you are insubordinate, or if you have failed, or if your ideals aren't in line with the ideals of the organization, they have what's called a window seat, which means they don't fire you, but they they shun you and they don't listen to your ideas. You 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 are an executive in in position only and you carry no weight. Nintendo is a very traditionally Japanese company. It wouldn't surprise me to find out that they really did participate in this window
1: seat well, uh, mentality. Which is fucked up, because this man created the Game & Watch and the Game Boy. Um, everything that he did for Nintendo, I mean, he set them up for success for decades. So... And then to just kind of throw him under the bus for, you know.
0: And, you know, to be fair, Yokoi himself stated on many occasions that the Virtual Boy wasn't ready for release. The Virtual Boy was released because Yamauchi said he wanted software and hardware to be present at the very first E3. This was unveiled at the very first E3 in 1995. The reason why he wanted that system out there was because Sony unveiled the PlayStation and Sega unveiled the Saturn and Nintendo didn't want to be left out. Yokoi wanted two more years of development time for this. And had he gotten it, maybe the system would have still failed, but I honestly don't think it would have failed to the extent that it actually did fail. Um, It ultimately is a shame to see that Gunpei Yokoi may have left Nintendo in disgrace, especially like you said, man. Everything he touched was gold. Like everything he touched, this guy started his job as a as the the factory manager, and literally worked his way up to becoming like the head of R and D for their portable consoles. It's it's a shame. Like it it truly is a shame to to know that he may have left in disgrace. Now, this this is kind of funny to me, though. Like, not the Yokoi thing, but the thing I'm about to bring up next. The Virtual Boy actually had competition. Like, when you consider how, how drastically the Virtual Boy failed, I think it's funny to find out that somebody would attempt another VR-style console. But Tiger, you know who After Party told us brought us the Game.com, which she said was clearly the worst-selling console to compete against the game, where they decided to release a console. This was also released in 1995. The sales numbers were apparently so low for this console that I couldn't find them anywhere. So <laughs> they may have sold one unit. I did read a review for it in which the reviewer said that the only place that the Tiger R zone belonged in was a trash can. It's called the Tiger R Zone? R Zone. R-Z-O-N-E. R-Zone. R-Z-O-N-E. Mm-hmm. Now the R zone was uh, it was a head-mounted uh display. So it had these like like little head straps, and then it had like this lens that only covered one of your eye, so you look like a Saiyan from Dragon Ball Z wearing a scouter over your eye and uh the games the games were very interesting because it was a cartridge based system right but the cartridges had the game screen built into them so each cartridge that you pulled out had a physical screen and what it would do is you would plug the screen in and it would project the image from the screen to the lens that you would wear over your eye This product just bombed initially. It bombed so bad that they remodeled it within that first year so that it wasn't even a head-mounted console. They actually redesigned it to a handheld form factor and that bombed even worse. So, there you go. The Tiger R Zone and the Virtual Boy. Two pieces of doomed handheld devices. It is interesting to see Nintendo fail at a portable device uh it hadn't happened before they were such a powerhouse in the market with the game boy uh you, i mean you you gave us the numbers man you don't sell that many units and then the next your next ride out you fail it was a it was a hard pill to swallow for nintendo and definitely probably a harder pill to swallow for gunpei yokoi Alright, so we're calling that Gen 3.5, but moving on to Nintendo's fourth generation hardware, this was a good one for me. The Game Boy Advance. So the Game Boy Advance was released on March 21st, 2001. Nintendo knows how to price a console, or they, at least they knew how to back then. So it retailed at i $99.99. Uh, It sold 81.51 million units. This is the combination of all the variations, which include the Game Boy Advance, the Game Boy SP, and ultimately the Game Boy Micro. It had full backwards compatibility with Game Boy and Game Boy Color games, which is important because both of those systems had a large library, and even though the Game Boy Color library was much smaller, you did have Pokemon Gold and Silver there, so... Very smart for Nintendo to have backwards compatibility for both of the uh, iterations of the Game Boy. So the Game Boy Advance was Nintendo's first full color display handheld. The Game Boy Color had color, but not like the Game Boy Advance. Like this was like their full, full display color display. Uh, it is the first Nintendo handheld to have shoulder buttons. Your L and R which is important because that has become a mainstay of all Nintendo portable systems from this. Uh, The revised model of the Game Boy, which was the the Game Boy Advance SP, brought us the clamshell design, which again is something that Gunpei Yokoi had himself designed when he came out with the dual stack screen Game Boy Advance. Uh, All other handhelds since the Game Boy Advance SP have had the clamshell design, with the exception of the, the Game Boy Micro and the 2DS. So the Game Boy Advance SP was a lit system, but it wasn't a backlit system. It was actually a frontlit system, but interesting note, my After Party didn't find it, and I was hoping that he wouldn't because I wanted to drop this bomb on him this is not Nintendo's first lit console. Nintendo actually has a game boy light, which is a backlit
1: variation of the game boy. Well, okay. So when I was, um, when I was younger, I had one of the, uh, the attachments you could put, they came out with an accessory for the game boy. That was a light, um, kind of similar to what the game boy light was. And, uh, it was a front lit, and it was actually it was also a magnifying screen. So I had that too. Yeah, and so when you played the Game Boy, it magn it was basically like a, putting a magnifying glass with a light over your Game Boy. But the accessory worked really well, and I used it um, pretty frequently, especially like when I was on the airplane because it you know sometimes it they turn the uh, the lights down. Um, on those long international flights. And so it was It was a good... It was kind of like what Nice One's talking about. Yes, they did have a, uh, a front-lit system, but it was kind of like just taking that light and permanently attaching it to the system. Exactly.
0: Yeah, so the Game Boy Light was the first Nintendo handheld to have a light. Uh, a lot of people like to mistake the GBA SP for having it not true we're giving you the facts here on the Nintendo Power Zone uh the Game Boy Advance SP this is interesting so when the Game Boy Advance launched it required two AAA batteries and it got you about uh 25 hours of battery life the Game Boy Advance SP is the first Nintendo handheld to have a rechargeable lithium ion battery which has gone on to appear in every other iteration of a nintendo handheld since so important uh for for nintendo to do that because batteries for these consoles would eventually the it get costly it would get so costly so it was awesome when this came out I actually had both iterations of this console I had the initial launch model and I had
1: the SP model the you know two years later. That's funny because I skipped over this console completely, probably because I was too busy playing my PS1. So something that
0: I like about this. the Game Boy Advance actually had connectivity to the GameCube via a link cable. There were some really good games that used this functionality. Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, which was Square Enix's return to Nintendo. After skipping out entirely on the Nintendo 64, Square returned to make a game. Uh, so you connected it with the link cables and you got to play an additional adventure with this game. Uh, the Legend of Zelda Four Swords had a connectivity with this. So there was a Game Boy game, a Game Boy Advance game, I'm sorry. Uh, And there was a GameCube game, and with the link cable, you got to play an additional story. Very cool. Uh, Pokemon Coliseum used this feature so that you could transfer your Pokemon to the GameCube and play with your team on the GameCube, and you could catch game-exclusive Pokemon in Pokemon Coliseum and transfer them back over to your Game Boy Advance. Mm -hmm. Sonic Adventure, uh, the first Sonic game to appear on a Nintendo Piece of hardware also had connectivity with the GameCube and the G- Game Boy Advance. Very cool feature. So the Game Boy Advance is often referred as the as a it's referred to as a portable SNES due to the fact that many many re released Super NES titles came out on the Game Boy Advance. So the entire Donkey Kong Country series appeared on the Game Boy Advance. All of the Super NES upgrades of Mario games reported over to the the Game Boy Advance but in actuality the Game Boy Advance is a 32-bit console they didn't they skipped a 16-bit handheld and they went straight into a 32-bit console so very interesting and the last piece of information I have for you on the Game Boy Advance is the very first entry to the Mario Kart handheld series was on the Game Boy Advance in Mario Kart Super Circuit. Very, very cool. The Game Boy Advance was an awesome piece of hardware. It, I'm sorry you missed it, man, because they had some of the best games uh, and some of the best way to play older games. Like, the Donkey Kong Country series on this was phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the release date. On it, uh, I was actually playing the PS2 at the time. I realized it came out in 2001. Yeah, oh, so
0: the Game Boy Advance was a killer unit, but it had some competition not a lot, but it had some. So, the first piece of hardware to attempt to compete with the Game Boy Advance. Was the Engage? Do you remember the Engage?
1: Uh, no, not really. All right. I, mean, I, I think I remember hearing about it. Honestly, I didn't hear that much about it though.
0: <laughs> okay, so the Engage. I've actually played one of these. It's pretty bad, but let's, go, let's we gotta talk about it a little bit. The Engage. The Engage was a smartphone handheld hybrid. They no, and it was made by Nokia. They were starting to see like a trend. They they realized that most people who had cell phones also carried with them a portable console, and they decided that they wanted to bridge the gap. They wanted to create a product that was both in one. Thus, Kate gave us the Engage. The Engage. Okay. So it was released on October 7th of 2003 with a launch price of $299.99 plus a monthly contract. Guys, cell phone contracts aren't that expensive nowadays. I mean, they're pretty expensive, but this was like in the wild, wild west of cell phones. Contracts for cell phones back in the day were awful. That's why a lot of prepaid services took off. In the early days of like everybody having a cell phone and there was no prepaid model. There is no definitive number of units sold. Nokia has put out the fact that they sold about 7 million units but no other uh, source I could find could substantiate that sales number. Um, So like I said there's no prepaid uh, version of this and the There's an interesting caveat to the N-Gage. It looked like a taco, and you talked into the phone like a taco. Instead of holding your cell phone up against your face like you normally would, you held it sideways because the the speakers and the microphone were on the side of the phone so that it wouldn't interfere with you attempting to play a game. And speaking of games... Third party support was pretty sparse but they did manage to get a few big games. There was a Metal Gear game, there was a couple of Sonic the Hedgehog games. The only real issue here is putting games into the console. You physically had to remove the back of the phone, remove your battery, and then place the cartridge into the phone, put your battery back in, and then cover your put the back case onto the phone. So. Playing this console was a pain in the ass. Pain in the ass. Considering you now have a shitty price point, you have to pay your monthly phone bill. On top of it, the games themselves aren't fun because they're not very good, and just replacing the games is a pain in the ass. So they eventually realized that all this is bad, so they released a second iteration a year later, called the N-Gage QD. Uh, the first thing they did was they put the microphone and the speaker on the correct place on the phone so that you could talk normally. Uh, they removed, the they, they altered the way that the cartridge slot was so you would actually slide the cartridges in to the bottom of the console and the smartest thing they did was that they actually came out with a prepaid version of this console. So no monthly contracts. You just pay what you want to pay. By the time they did that, though, the Engage already had a bad rap as a bad system. Bad games. Still a pretty high price point. There's just too much going on here that it ultimately just led to the ultimate failure of the Engage. gauge But I want to say that the Engage gauge is slightly innovative the engage nokia saw the the great importance of combining your cell phone and your gaming device this is something that we deal with very much now where our cell phones double as gaming consoles and you just slide them in your pocket and you're good to go you have both devices in one place very innovative they were smart they were, it was very forward thinking. The problem was, it was forward thinking, but the execution really hurt this, this console. Like, it just did not get enough things together in order to truly capitalize and really make a dent into Nintendo. In the first month of the N release, they were outsold by the Game Boy Advance 17 to 1. 17 to 1. And that's mind-boggling, that is literally mind-boggling, just ultimate failure on all fronts. Alright guys, so what we're gonna do is split this episode into two separate parts, because this is a long one, so go ahead, check out part 2 for Gens 5 and Gen 6, and we will also discuss what the Nintendo Switch means for Nintendo dedicated handheld consoles. So go ahead, download part two now for the second half of this episode, and please, always stay fresh.